literally anybody but Stan. Um. This is M. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is the podcast for TV lovers, movie buffs, and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we loved, what we hated, and what's just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to, and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after the episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash good, bad, basic. Today we'll be discussing the final seasons of the critically acclaimed Mad Men, AMC's period drama about the inner lives of Manhattan's elite advertising executives successfully captured the personal and political nuances of the white upper middle class who kept consumerism at an all-time high during a time of war. What was it about the series that made these people in this time period seem so interesting? How did Mad Men manage to grab and hold the attention of so many people for so many seasons? Stay tuned. everyone if you have not listened to our last two episodes on Mad Men go ahead and remedy that right now Mad Men part one and two are already up but if you have here are some uh, details about Mad Men to refresh your memory the series is an American period drama created by Matthew Weiner it was released from July 19 2007 until May 17 2005 and it aired on the AMC network for seven seasons and a total of 92 episodes. The series stars John Hamm as Don Draper, born Dick Whitman, our protagonist, Elizabeth Moss as Margaret Peggy Olson. She is at this point an advertisement, an advertising executive in her own right. Vincent Carthizer as Pierre Pete Campbell, January Jones as Elizabeth Betty. Now, Frances, originally Betty Hofstad Draper. She's Don's first wife. Christina Hendricks is Joan, originally Holloway, now Joan Harris. She is the first the office manager, but now a partner at Sterling Cooper Draper Price. John Slattery as Roger Sterling, Don's mentor and one of the sons of one of the original senior partners at the agency. Aaron Staten as Kenneth Ken Cosgrove, Rich Sommer as Harold Harry Crane, Allison Bree as Gertrude Vogel Campbell, aka Trudy, Pete's wife, Kiernan Shipka as Sally Beth Draper, Don and Betty's eldest child. Um, in seasons, uh, seasons five through seven, Mason Vale Cotton as Robert Bobby Draper. Don and Elizabeth's oldest son, Jared Harris as Lane Price, Robert Morse as Bertram Burt Cooper, Jessica Parre as Megan Calvey Draper, Don's second wife, Christopher Stanley as Henry Francis, Betty's second husband, 
Tiana Paris as Don Chambers, uh, office secretary, um, Don secretary, who later becomes Jones' replacement as office manager. So these are all of our major players in seasons five through seven. Um, we're covering season six and seven today. So let's jump into it. Um, we left off at season five, and a lot of things happened in season five. Season five was the season that we are thrust into Don and Megan's married life. And we see a lot of the problems in their relationship. Some of them caused by age. Um, there's a huge age gap between them. But most of them caused by the fact that these people never really got or never really took the chance to get to know each other. They don't know anything about each other. They are learning things in the thick of marriage that they should have learned in early courtship. Oh, right. So before we, I know you just finished talking about season five, but I do, let's talk about some, something else that uh, happened in season five really quickly that we didn't quite touch on in the last episode. So there's a, there's an introduction of a new character who I guess I'll just refer to as black Dawn um, that we're introduced to in season five. And she is, Don's Don Draper's new secretary. So uh the advent of of Black Don or like her her appearance actually has is is interesting within and of itself. So back when Twitter was young and new and fresh, um around season basically by the time season 4 is premiering and, and happening, you have like a growing contingent um, offline, not offline, but like online and critically that, you know, is sort of just like, where are the black people? <laughs> um, there are no black people on this show. Hmm. This is interesting. And a, a constant criticism of the show or not. A, well, yes, a constant criticism, something that had been bubbling in the audience sphere was that like, it's kind of crazy that this show that's so much tied to historical accuracy and like observing a, a, a socio-political moment and observing relationships um, in a socio-political way uh, subversively and overtly uh, is just completely excluding this other huge, and like, you know, it is thinking about the Vietnam war and, the other wars and hippies and stuff, but it's, but it's completely ignoring this other huge part of American life that is taking place, which is civil rights and integration um, into workplaces. So Matthew Weiner gives this really infamous interview uh, in, I can't remember exactly which one. I think it's either, it's either THR or vulture, but he says something to the effect of basically when it when a reporter brings it up about like, hey, there there are no black people on this show on on Mad Men. He says something essentially to the effect to the effect of, and I'm being like really flippant when I say this. Uh, I don't really care about black people. <laughs> like I'm not <laughs> like don't don't ask me. I don't care. Like that's just. Um, I think what he what he actually says is something of like I just I'm not interested in that experience. I think that's what he says. And mm -hmm. that did not go over well. So in response, you have Black Dawn, which was a very cheeky 
response essentially to the criticism of the show. But she was, but Don Shirley and eventually Shirley were not meant to be on this show. They were, they were definitely, uh, they were in response to sort of mounting criticism and, and sort of uh, calling out. But I, per- and I, I, you'll, I guess you're about to, I personally felt like this was an instance in where like call out culture or like quote unquote cancel culture, which isn't real. Once again, cancel culture is not real. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not real. I remember thinking like this was an instance in where like the 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 voice of Twitter or cancel cancel culture worked and did the work what it was supposed to do and and forced a creator and a, and a, and a showrunner to really evaluate what they were doing and then change course in a way that made that ended up enriching the show for the better and created if like a more historically uh, accurate portrait ver- and not something that was just siloed and, and ahistorical. I think it's super interesting that Matthew Weiner said that he's not interested in black perspectives, not just because it's racist as fuck, <laughs> but because it's probably the most honest thing that any of these showrunners um, have ever has ever said. A lot of them will give a hundred and one reasons about why there's no um, black people on their show, except that one, which we know is the true one, right? Um, for me, if you are not black and you are not interested in black people's perspectives on any given thing, by all means, don't write black people because you're going to ruin it. <laughs> I've never been on the the side of oh, we need to have more Black representation on fill-in-the-blank white show. I've always been of the school of, no, white people, stop writing about us, stop thinking about us. What you need to do is open the door for Black writers and Black directors um, to do what they want to do and give Black showrunners who want to create these Black narratives the space to do so. Basically, stop trying to tell our stories, whether out of desire or out of guilt. Give us a chance to tell our own stories because only we can do them properly. I've yet to see even the most enthusiastic, well-meaning white creator or white writer an authentic feeling Black character. Yeah, you know, it's one of these, it's definitely one of those things that I'm, I'm back and I'm just, I'm always back and forth on. I don't think I have an answer because what, because what you're saying makes sense, obviously. And what you're saying is, um, the ideal, but I guess in practice and in like pragmatism, it's like, how often does that actually happen? You know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, this is why I love Lincoln Heights so much. Lincoln Heights wasn't a perfect show, but it gets to the core of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, copaganda aside, who, yes. who but a Black woman with a staff of Black writers could have given us a show like this? See, and that's very true. Like, and there's so much in Lincoln Heights that's so... I mean we cover this we covered Lincoln Heights listen to the episode but there's so much to me it's a very good it's a great show it's just it's up there with with the terms of like a portrait of black life but um it's like like how does that like in practice how like does that actually happen because so often it doesn't right you know you don't I'm of the school of thought that white guilt 
should not be in the form of crumbs. Now, no offense to Tiana Paris, she did what she had to do as Black Dawn, but they were literally throwing crumbs out there with these Dawn and Shirley characters to quell the backlash, right? I want your white guilt to translate to money. Give Black show showrunners uh, uh, the green light. Give Black producers um, uh, the, the, the space. Give Black uh, staff, writing staff, the money. Give us your money, basically, if you feel so bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and that's, listen, I, I vibe with that. That's real. That's fair. But um, and uh, I guess, unfortunately, it just, it doesn't always, it doesn't break out that way. And I guess, and I don't know, like, I guess, um, I think it's like a do, I think you have a, I think particularly like in, in this sphere, if you are a writer and you're writing like a period piece, particularly like this, like it's about America in the sixties. I think you, and you're touting yourself and you're, and you're touting your show is to be like an accurate portrait and you're making the point to not be a historical or it's not stylistic in any type of way. I do think you have the duty to portray it like accurately. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I'm always, I'm always back and forth. Like, cause I'm, cause a part of me is like, if I know how to write white people, like you should know how to write mm -hmm. black people. Even if that seems like a silly request, which I think you can argue that it is. I, I still am just like, I work really hard to be good. Like, why don't you? Like, I, right. part of me doesn't get that. But then, but then I understand the other end of that. But we grew up having to learn how to navigate whiteness and white people never grew up learning how to navigate blackness. And that's a huge disadvantage for them in, art in an artistic fashion. Uh, uh, but like Peggy and Dawn, Black Dawn, do you have like a brief interaction that's like super awkward and horrible? <laughs> I call it the purse incident. And it's interesting. Yeah, the purse incident. So it's like Dawn is over there because... Why is she even over there? I forget. So Peggy she finds out that she's been sleeping in White Dawn's office because um, thanks to the riots, it's too dangerous for her to leave the office and try to take the train home at night. So her brother has advised her to just stay there. So Peggy realizes that she's been spending a several nights a week there and invites her to come home with her so she could get a good night's rest. Okay, right. That's That's what it is. All right. Okay. And so... Um, and Peggy goes, like, full, like, <laughs> Peggy gets, like, really drunk, and she goes, like, full white feminist, and she's like, do you want to be, like, a copy editor? Because, like, I can make you one. And she's like, and it's not, it sounds like Peggy's just trying to be nice. She's not being nice. She's really just, like, sort of flexing her power uh, in trying and yeah. trying to imply that, like, Dawn doesn't black Dawn doesn't know like what's best for her or kind to like trying to force voice these things on her. And Dawn's like, no, it also kind of feels like she's trying to buy that girl's friendship. Right. Maybe that's just the vibe that I got, but I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is weird. And Dawn very like confidently is like, no, I like my job. I like this. This is a vibe. Like, and we know she's there paying her less than they pay Peggy, but okay. Uh, and I'm sure they're paying her much less than they paid Joan. Um, but 
Uh, well, Joe's an office manager. <laughs> well, eventually when she becomes office manager. Right, 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 right. No, but, um, but, uh, so then she gets this purse and so, so then like Peggy, so like when, you know, Peggy says goodnight, Peggy like has her purse like on the coffee table and she basically like, as she's get, going to go back to like her room there's, like, this awkward thing. Like, she looks at... Peggy looks at the purse and then looks at Dawn and then it's like, oh, like, she'll steal from me. So then she, like, takes her purse, basically, because she she still views Dawn, like, as, like, this other, like, this this criminal, this sort of, like, foreign and um, malicious entity. Oh, no, no, she didn't take the purse, remember? She looked at the purse, and she looked at Donna. She saw Don looking at the purse and looking at her. And then she took the empty beer bottles, and she said, I'm just going to throw these away. And she went to bed. And the next day when she woke up, Don leaves a note on top of the purse. And the note says, thank you for your hospitality. I'm sorry for putting you out. <laughs> oh. Oh, right. never mind. So basically, like, she got called out. Like, the fact that Don left the note on the purse, they both know what's up. Right. Right. It's, it's like, but a like she, wanted to take, she wanted to take her purse from that coffee table so bad. Um, literally, so many things rose to the first surface of that scene. We already knew that Peggy had issues when it came to the Negroes, right? Um, that first conversation with Abe, where he calls out her privilege and she talks about how the Negroes can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, too. Obviously, she's talking about black men. Um, and how hard it is to be a woman and this, that, and the third. Black women never entering her consciousness, right? And so that was a good thing to see in that scene. And also, Don, Black Don says to her what we've all been thinking. You people drink a lot. Right. <laughs> that That's what I've been thinking from the very beginning. And I think one of the great things that Mad Men does, and I'm sure this is this this is conscious, but they don't understand the impact that it has is that um, it, it pretty accurately portrays the how everybody at that time was like a functional alcoholic. Um, on to season six. Season six kicks off Don and Megan are in Hawaii because they're there to look at some resort that Don has to make an ad about. But um, it's it's a year has passed, so... Don, like he does, has found new women to cheat with. Right. We, it's 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 actually been like, like it's been so long, right? Since she got he got her that commercial, but we saw at that very end of that season five finale, like he had avoided cheating on Megan this far, but a girl comes up to him at the bar and asks, "Are you alone?" And he kind of looks at her and almost breaks the fourth wall, like he almost looks at the camera, right? And then mm -hmm. we know he's about to say, yes, he is alone. Like, the cheating has already started once Megan's new career has popped off. And in season six, she's not doing commercials anymore. She's a, she's a whole soap opera actress. Yeah, Megan's moved up. So, like, the thing that Megan thought would launch her career did end up launching her career. She's on a soap opera, and she has, you know, representation, and she's she's working steadily, and, and Don is having an affair with their neighbor, their neighbors that live downstairs, 
and the neighbor's name yeah. is like Sylvia. Yeah, Sylvia is played by Linda Cardinelli, which is, um, you guys might remember her from Freaks and Geeks and then later on ER. The casting choice was interesting because, um, Alex, you have like not a not completely formed hypothesis about Don's relationship to brunettes, right? Yes. <laughs> not still not completely formed, but it I do find it their relationship is a very interesting one. Don and Don and Sylvia's. Um they have their little first of all, Don is like in his bag because like they have their sort of little super light like freak stuff that they do. And so where he tells her to stay in bed all day and then sends her dresses so he can just like take them off when he gets there. Yeah. I mean, you have a whole husband and a house to tend to. I don't know who has a time to stay in bed all day, but go off girl. Go um, off. My- <laughs> <laughs> but their relationship is great because like she, she breaks off their relationship on two occasions and and honestly, I've, it kind of mimics his relationship with Rachel, but in reverse. Rachel wanted to be with him and he, and he left her, right? Right. And kind of strung her along a little bit. And that's sort of happening again with Sylvia. And the fact that Sylvia's last name is Rosen, I feel like it's safe to imply that either she or her husband are Jewish. So I almost felt like it, there, was a, there was a deep, uh, um, um, what is it, symmetry? To right. his previous previous dalliance with Rachel, because now he's involved with another Jewish woman. Except this one uh, doesn't really want him that way because she's already married, and he's he's not in the role of the pursuant, and right. he doesn't really want her like that because he's not trying to divorce Megan, right? He just likes to chase, right? And she, by the way, she's Italian, and I think the doctor is, is Jewish. Oh, okay. I mean, there are Italian Jews, but yeah, I, um, it's. It's kind of crazy how that happened. Um, I feel like beginning with her too was maybe in his in the back of his mind, like a, a, a second ch- chance with the Rachel thing because Rachel died before he could like really give her the closure and the appropriate apology that he needed to. Right, and we'll we'll see that later when he when we find out that like Rachel dies and he goes to the funeral, right? Right, right, right. Um, but um, yeah, definitely like him him trying to relive that situation with Rachel, but with a new person and a clean slate. But he he has sex with Sylvia, but when Sylvia finally like breaks it off, he is like so shook. <laughs> because Don Draper's not the dude that gets left. He's the dude that leaves people, right? Like the only one who'd ever left him prior to this was Betty. And that doesn't even count because he'd already cheated on her with half of Manhattan by that point. Like, she didn't even know the bulk of his affairs. Like, that's what really kills me. Betty doesn't even know the half. Uh, but something... Okay, so one of the extremely interesting things we learn in season six is that we, during, like, a flashback, we learned that the first time Don had sex, he was raped. Mm. And then his... I guess the woman who he called mother, like, was the mother figure to him, like, beat him over it. So I was like, whew, trauma. Right. So his stepmother, Abigail, beat him over this. Now, when I initially saw this, I thought that it's because she's such a a super religious woman. um, And that's why she beat him. 
But in retrospect, I think she beat him because being his mother being who she was, a prostitute, and his father being who he is, a man who cheated on her with a prostitute, um, she always maybe believed the worst of Dick. And also her beating him, I think that's what she wanted to do to her husband all those years ago when um, that side baby was brought to her door. <laughs> I think that this yeah. is like years of like pent up rage she was unleashing upon this child. But Mad Men, for all of its many, many faults, did something really brilliant with the Don Draper Dick Whitman character insofar as this uh, sexual assault being his first sexual experience. This is probably one of the few shows that does not romanticize um, young boys being taken advantage of by older women, nor does it nor does it frame the character as thinking that what happened to them was good either. Right. That's that's a very salient point, yes. Like it's because y'all really y'all really trifling with this. Y'all do this a lot where like either you frame you try to romanticize the situation to the audience or the character himself, even if everyone else sees it's wrong, will say things like, and I'm quoting Pacey from Dawson's Creek here, she made me a woman. This is really toxic. And situations like this absolutely um uh create men like Don Draper, who uh, run through women like water and treat women's bodies like therapists. Right. And then have like, have really like deep trouble, like sustaining any type of like real and true intimacy. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he doesn't know he... how to be vulnerable with anybody except Anna, right. the one woman he never slept with. Right. Which is like further expanded on when he ends up like sleeping with Betty again. Right, right, right. Like, sex is absolutely not uh, cerebral or emotional for Don. It's a purely physical response to his psychological trauma. Um, And he doesn't even realize it's a response to trauma anymore. But we see Don, like the faithful version of Don, for however long that lasts, can only operate when he's happy. Like, really happy. He's not stressed out and things are going his way. Soon as anxiety kicks up, back to drinking, back to whoring. Right. And it's interesting because, so this episode where Don and Betty sleep together, Bobby is at sleepaway camp and they go to see Bobby at this like sleepaway camp because it's like parents' day at the camp or whatever. It's the first time they've talked, I guess, in a long time without all of that drama but without all of the really tense emotions between Mm. them afterwards they had they both have this like really interesting conversation and it it gets like really it gets really insightful it's actually like a really beautiful episode um and eddie and after it's finished you know don says i've i've really missed you and He's like, do you, and he's like, do you like feel guilty? And she's like, eh, no, <laughs> which is actually really interesting because we know that like Betty is like not a person who like cheats on her husbands. Like she's very like, like a like even with Don, even like before, um, she found out that he cheated. She's like not really that type of person, but um, 
in her mind, like, but in her mind, like, she doesn't really think of it as cheating. Uh, when she sleeps with Don, that's fine. Whatever. Um, that's Betty logic. God love her. <laughs> and she talks to him and they have this really deep, like, really great conversation. And she, she says, like, you know, I feel close to you. And he goes, well, sex isn't like anything that he goes, why is like sex? Like the, well, Don says, why is sex like the definition of being close to somebody? He's like, I don't feel that. Like, and basically admitting that like, there's this like thing that's wrong, like not this thing that's wrong, but like, it's just not how he is. And, you know, he says, if we had just sort of, if, if you had said like, no, but then like, we had just like laid here and like, you would let me hold you. I would have felt like more close to you or I'd have felt just as close to you as I do like right now. And I'm, and I'm looking at you. Um, and I was like, damn, that shit's, shit's ugly. I hate that. Yeah. But I think it also like gives you a profound insight to Don's character and why he was so close to Anna, despite the fact that they never slept together. Like he was really vulnerable with that woman. He really poured his heart out to her. And I think more than anything, the type of, the type of woman Don needs is a type of woman who's not going to be sexually available to him, <laughs> but that's never going to be the woman he chooses. Cause Don is, is broken. Right. He's, he's <laughs> super broken and it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. So, right. Um, so other things that happen. Okay. So one of the big things that happens in season six is that the agency and, um, Cutler, Gleason and Clow merge together to form one big agency. And they do it in order to get, um, Chevy, which is like a huge, huge account. And they do end up getting the Chevy account. And so one of the things that we get to sort of explore this season is like the changing dynamics of the office and, and these new players and um, the, the Ted, Ted Clow and uh, these other guys and, and their whole stuff and, and their whole bag so let's talk about the, the MLK episode. <laughs> Child, oh my God. So this this season takes course takes place over the course of December 1967 to November 1968. And for those in the know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated April 4th, 1968. So He's assassinated. It's a big deal, obviously. Now, the show does talk about uh, things going on, um, right? Like, it talks about the riots. It talks about uh, protests. It talks about integration. And now it's talking about the assassination of this huge black uh, leader and this figurehead. But it has to talk about it in a different way now because Black Dawn is here in the office now. Um, this episode is a mess. <laughs> it is a mess because it has everybody acting completely out of character. None more so than Mr. Pete Campbell. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's horrible. It's horrible. I hate I it. I don't know who that body snatcher was, but that wasn't Pete reacting in that scene. Please it stop. It wasn't. So like, yeah, <laughs> the episode is like, 
So like I said earlier, there's this, and it's, there's this reaction. There's like a reactionary thing that's happening in the writer's room because of like all this mounting criticism. And it's, it's no, and it's the clearest it's ever been in this. And I guess all this, all that like criticism is so felt in this, this MLK episode because it's a disaster because suddenly you have every person in the office, like being like, I was an ally, like, oh my God, I love black people so much. And like, (laughs) you know, how could they do this? I'm like, what? (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Like Uh... when you pull, like, I mean, when you pull New York Times exit polling of that period, um, I think even like a month post of MLK's death, 50, like 50% of white people, and I think it's higher than that, but like 50% and, um, Think that he is like a thought he was just like a troublemaker, that he had it coming. So it's like, right. why am I seeing this whole episode where like everybody in this office, particularly Pete Campbell, gets on this, does this really horrible, awkward speech about like, how dare you? Cause he's talking to Harry. So what so he and Harry Harry basically has like a really honest reaction. And yeah. in fact, Harry has the reaction that I would have expected out of Pete, which is, how is this going to affect our money? We got to pull ads. Like, what, like, what's, like, and, like, you know, they're stressed about, they're not stressed about this person who meant, you know, the gravity of what happened and the gravity of what it means as a nation. Like, they're just worried about their paper and what it means for their bank account. And, like, now they're annoyed that they can't, like, get on the subway because, the black people are going to be rioting like and Pete and that's basically Harry's reaction and Pete in kind responds like this man was like important and (laughs) um and he like he was just a dad with these kids and I'm like this is terrible make this stop It's beyond terrible. And literally, if anyone else but Pete had had this reaction, I would have let it slide. But we remember Pete's interaction with Hollis over that TV, right? And why he bought his TV. And him trying to understand the mind of the Negro consumer, right? Right. We remember that Pete was willing to sell Joan for 50000 uh to the owner of Jaguar, Right. Right. And she is a mother with a child at home, right? So <laughs> this idea, <laughs> this idea that Pete cares more about people, especially a person that he does not even know, and a black person at that more than his bottom line is completely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like it's it's dumb. Like the only people who have like the only people in the episode who I feel have like honest reactions that like I would have expected of white people at the time are Harry, uh, Betty and Henry. That's it. Right. Like everybody else. I'm like, what in the body snatchers is this? (laughs) Is this opposite day Pete Campbell? No, but like his reaction was like the most obscene and absurd, completely absurd. Um, even black Don's reaction. Um, yeah, I'll let that slide. Because they ask her if she wants to take the rest of the day off. And she says no. 
And I, looking back, I understand that because she doesn't want them to think that she is weak and fragile and possibly throw that in her face at a future time, right? Right. So, like, I maybe can understand that reaction, too. But this was this thing with Pete was completely out of left field. It made absolutely no sense. And if you're trying to make the character more woke, it needs to be a bit more gradual than this. Right. The way he handled Joan last season pretty much cemented his character as um, an unscrupulous person. Right. Like, Pete like, cares about his bag and his ambition before anything else right 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 um there's just no coming back from this um you can't make him like the woke savior and the the, the irony of this is like here we are 52 years later and white people are still doing this pretend ally shit they're still doing it it's horrible oh like i would say the only other person that like i would say and there's like one other person who i think had an honest reaction and that's probably like Peggy's boyfriend Abe. When yeah, he's but like, Abe been about that life. <laughs> oh, and see, that's the thing. Like, I don't even read Abe as like he's like, oh, I'm fighting for the cause. Like, I think right. Abe dresses. I think Abe dresses um, his intentions up in that to make him feel better about himself. But I think yeah. Abe is just as exploitative as like all those other people. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, but the reason why I say Abe been about that life is that because unlike them, Abe being a journalist kept abreast of Negro issues, right? Right. So his reaction, I felt, was very, very, very honest. He's not doing this whole, oh my God, I'm broken. Our nation is a broken. But he's he, like, he let me get to up. Harlem so right. I can report and get this money. Like, let's go. Right, because he still has a job to do. This is a huge story. And um, covering MLK's assassination and Malcolm X's assassination made several people's careers. No black people, by the way. But it made several people's careers. Um, so his reaction is a very honest response. Remember, he had left for weeks at a time to cover the riots. Um, like, that was a whole thing. Like, Abe's been doing this. Um, I don't think that Abe is an ally by any such of the imagination, but he certainly uh, got more ally points than everybody else on this show. <laughs> right. Um, but, like, like, Joan crying was, like, dumb. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know why they did that, because Joan's not a crier. Like, Joan has, has shown us specifically, like, Joan's one of the people that, does, that cries very rarely, and when she does, she tries her best to do it in private, Right. She right. always has like a stiff upper lip because she doesn't want to be seen as like weak in that office either because she knows what a lot of the men in that office think of her. Like her man's getting shipped out, stiff upper lip. Uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody got run over by the lawnmower. She's the first one there trying to, uh, to put a tourniquet on the wound. Right. Right. Um, Jones cried in front of people two times on that show. Um, at her office going away party the night after she realized that her man was a failure of a doctor <laughs> and uh, the night that her and Roger got mugged. Right. It was the only time she's cried in front of people. So I don't know why she's crying over this Negro that she does not know. She doesn't know, like, and who, you know, just didn't mean anything to her. Um, and then there was one other one that I thought that was really stupid that I hated. Oh, when, Sh when Shirley, Peggy's secretary... Shirley's black. Um, when Shirley is like, oh, like goes to like confide in Peggy, like all her feelings. I'm like, that would never happen. No, like black no. people don't 
like talk like we just don't talk to white people in the at, at our workplaces like that. If you I if mean, you even do. Quiet as it's kept, a lot of us don't even talk to the white people in our lives like that. Like we could have a white neighbor or white like church associate, but like unless that's like your best friend, we're not going to be talking about uh, in depth about our feelings concerning racial issues or trying to make white people understand our feelings about those issues. Like I watched this episode like completely dumbfounded. Like I know Shirley has black friends, like sis. Right. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, and this isn't just a coworker. This is your superior. This is your boss. Like, and in the fifties, no black woman is going to, even if she wanted to unburden her soul to to some white woman, would do it to her boss because she would be minding her p's and q's and being very careful of not saying something that, however innocuous, would make that person feel offended or defensive and possibly get her fired. They actually exactly. wrote this well when they were dealing with the Carla character. Remember, mm-hmm. Carla was always biting her tongue. We could see it. <laughs> Right, you could feel it. Carla's always trying to ride that line because, like, who knows, right? Right, and Hollis did it, too. Like, he's like, I can't tell this person too much because no matter what he says, he still still has the potential to get me fired, but I can't be tight-lipped either because then I'm rude and that could get me fired. Um, I I wish somebody in the writer's room had realized that for a lot of Black women um, in that period, the relationship between... um, uh, Shirley and Peggy is not different than the relationship between uh, Carla and Betty. It's not. Right. It really isn't. Like, there's just no... Like, it's not happening the way you you think it's happening. But... Uh, uh, it's but a, I they, mean, it's a they mess. Try, they, try, they try so hard to make um, Peggy intersectional. <laughs> and that's not... That's not it. It's not it. It's just not... I know y'all want that girl to be your white feminist savior, but she's not. She's a girl that lucked out and worked very hard to help herself. Um, She was a kind person for the most part, but she's not a feminist icon. You guys, stop it. Right, stop it. Just let it go. Let it go. So, more on Pete this season. He cheats on Trudy again, because it's not enough that he um, basically uh, coerced their neighbor's au pair and that he um, had this affair with Beth. He now cheats on her with this other woman, Brenda, and Trudy finds out and she shows him the door, as she should, because Trudy's never been anything but good to that man. Right. We hate it. and, And I'm happy for her. She's like, you know... How about you get the fuck out? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's absolutely deserved. Right. And then she takes him back and he goes to a brothel. But he and her father catch each other at this brothel. And her dad, instead of keeping his mouth shut, right? He plays right. his leverage. He knows that his daughter only believes the best in him. So he snitches on Pete. <laughs> <laughs> And she doesn't believe him when he says, like, your daddy was there, too. And she's like, no, it's done. For real, for real. We're done. Right. (laughs) And I mean, like, you knew this was going to happen, though. Like, that girl loves her father because her father, for all his faults, like, both of Trudy's parents are probably the most emotionally involved parents we'll see on Mad Men. Right. Like, they care about her so much. They do. In fact, I was thinking, like, the other, like, 
Trudy is probably Trudy's parents and Trudy in general is is probably the best you could hope for at a time like that. You know what I mean? The absolute best. Like, but like, so something else that happens this season is Joan becomes a true blue bona fide account woman um, for Avon Cosmetics, and we're so happy for her. We are, and Avon couldn't have chosen a better face. I mean, um, then and even now, she's still like white beauty standards. Very, very, very pale, freckleless skin, big blue eyes, full lips. Um, Joan can walk into a room and probably sell the clothes on her back if she had to <laughs> to another woman. Um, but getting this account was like a huge, huge deal, right? Because um, despite how many years she had put in as um, a secretary and then an office manager, I still feel like a lot of people were questioning her partnership. Yeah, they questioned her partnership. And also she clearly wanted, she, you know, she, she wants more. Like she just wants more. She's looking for something more and she's looking for something. She's an ambitious person and, and it's hard for her because she is a woman in this time period and, and, Ambition isn't encouraged in women, um, but she wants to be more in having this account allowed her to do that. I mean, she steals it, but it was absolutely the the right thing to do to steal it and and work it. And, you know, good for her. Another thing that happens this season is for the first time, and God knows it was only a matter of time, as many women as he's been messing around with, for the first time ever... Don gets caught by one of his children cheating. Sally catches him cheating with Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the risk this man took, I really thought he was going to get caught with Miss Farrell. <laughs> but the risk this man took. So, and honestly, he shouldn't have gotten caught. It's like the universe was conspiring against him because he wasn't even at his house. He wasn't even in their apartment, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> he was at Sylvia's apartment and got caught by his child at his mistress's apartment. Ooh, that's that's God. <laughs> uh, Sally got the keys from their doorman to get a letter back that her friend Julie had um, put under the door of the Rosen's apartment because Sally has a crush on the Rosen's son, Mitchell. So she gets the keys from the doorman, which the doorman shouldn't have done, bad doorman. And goes to the Rosen's apartment to retrieve this letter and catches her father with Sylvia. And she's scarred. She's scarred. Yeah. Um, um, she really loves Megan. Um, you know, she knows that Megan is not the reason her parents broke up because her mom been remarried <laughs> to Henry. Um, and Megan's really kind to her and really nice to her. And they're close enough in age that she almost, almost sees Megan as like a cool older sister. So this is really hurtful to her. I think you also have to consider that with Megan back in the picture, uh, there's been like some more stability toward in like Don's household, right? Like, right, just a bit more, um, not much, but enough. And they've they've all developed a rhythm. So for that to happen, it's like, you know, her father's responsible for wrecking like another home. Right, right. Two homes. His and Sylvia's. So Sylvia's, yeah. That's a lot. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to deal with. 
well, Peggy, by the way, Peggy and Ted, Ted Clow of, of Cutler, Cleason and Clow, they, they sleep together. So that's important information. Peggy but, keeps bagging these powerful men, but they're all like, they're all psychologically fucked up. See, and I think that like Ted is actually pretty good for her, but like it was never going to work out. I mean, he's married, so... Right. He's married and he, like, wanted to stay married to his wife. He wanted to, like, work things out, but... So... Yeah, so there's a point where he says, I'm gonna leave my wife and children for you. But then he decides to go across the country to California to get away from her and keep his family intact. The the Jay-Z solution to cheating. Child. Like, high-key... It's kind of a big deal when you have such a psychological hold over a man that he has to, like, leave the state, let alone right. move several states away, just to be free of the temptation of you. I feel like that's, that that's, even, that's like, huge pussy energy. <laughs> <laughs> and not even, like, just a couple of states. I mean, she's going. he's going all the way to California from New York City. Like That's three time zones, you guys. Three. <laughs> that's so much. Listen, uh, I feel like if if I feel like honestly, just it's New York. Just moving boroughs would have been enough, right? <laughs> I, I guess not. I, I guess, guess not. Joan does do something really significant, and she invites Roger to start um, being in Kevin's life, which is a big deal. They all have Thanksgiving together, but the other big thing is that. The, the agency is invited to pitch uh, for Hershey, which is a really big deal because, like, I guess Hershey doesn't, like, do advertisements. When the agency is pitching to Hershey, of course, Don uses this time to completely and utterly self-destruct. He basically talks to her in, in like, the pitch meeting to Hershey. Don talks about how, like, after his mother would beat him and, like, he would like rob johns for the 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 prostitutes in the brothel like one of them would like give him a hershey bar and he would go outside and eat it alone and it was like the only good thing that was ever in his life and he tells that to the hershey people (laughs) yo (laughs) therapy though therapy is real you don't have to do this at work actually (laughs) Right? Like, it's a breakthrough, but at the same time, I was like, oh, this is, like, not the time, Don. And and after that huge display and the, the, that big loss of the account, the, the firm tells him to take a leave of absence, and they do not give him a return date. Yeah, that's a kind way of saying you're fired, but, but you're also not eligible for unemployment. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> like sorry about that but listen listen you can't really time when you have a breakthrough but you can control who you share that information with this was not the this was not the 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 place or the people that you should have been sharing this information with don kind of collapses in the beginning and the end of this season this time he did it sober at least in the beginning of the season he like has a complete meltdown and like is like a drunken mess at Roger's mom's funeral and like right. completely hijacks the funeral being a sloppy drunk. I mean, he vomits like on yep. the floor. I mean, it is in the umbrella, in the umbrella caddy. 
it's so bad. <laughs> it's so gross. Imagine it's raining and you open your umbrella and you get splashed with something that's not water. Um, <laughs> that's sad. But the season closes with him taking his children to the brothel where he grew right. up. To, to finally be real about, you know, where he grew up and, and who he is. Which is long overdue. Um, it may, and it honestly might be too late for Sally, but it wasn't too late for Bobby and Jean. Um, like, okay, this is who, this is dad's humble beginnings or whatever. Um, this season, I feel, was a good carry-on from previous seasons. They, you know, Mad Men has known from the beginning what type of story they're telling with a few racial hiccups. Um, <laughs> get writers if you insist on black characters on these all-white shows you need black writers not just one negro not just two at least four i'm not kidding right now um they can't be in a position where they're the lone black voice um or they just go along with everything you say because they're afraid of losing their jobs like carla <laughs> so get some black writers in that room please but with these few minor hiccups i would say that this season was actually quite good the evolution of the relationships, the marriages, the uh, polit- the the excuse me, the work ambitions, I felt was really really smooth. Um, I'm gonna put this season at a good minus because that MLK episode was like such a fucking disaster. It was, and the 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 fucked up part about it is that after the episode, people don't hold on to like this like um this moral high ground, right? They go back to being the pieces of shit they were previously. <laughs> right. They're just like, what? this shit. Like, what like, the fuck? Like, y'all did a complete character assassination for one episode and then went back to business as usual. So what's really happening here? So season seven. Season seven, uh, Don is not taking his retirement or like his leave of absence well, like at all. Um, He's doing what he does best, having sex with inappropriate women and, and drinking again. So all that journaling, you know, I, I would have hoped that he would picked up the journal again. Well, he probably feels like it doesn't work anyway. So, but that that's what it is. Yeah, my heart's kind of hurting for Don, um, but like also not. Because this is more than the Hershey account. This is an accumulation of how he's chosen to live his life. Right. Got back from the war. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm sorry, but that's what this is. So this is the the longest season of Mad Men. Every other season was like 13 episodes, but this is 14 because they split it into two parts. Um, part one is January 69 to July of 69. And Don is not just dealing with the aftermath of this Hershey account. He's dealing with the the thread, the very loose thread that his marriage to Megan is hanging on by. Oh um, yeah. Yep. They shouldn't have been together. They don't need to be together, but they're both trying to hold on. This is his second marriage, and that's a, a big thing. He needs to show that he's not like Roger, right? He's not going to divorce after, like, two years the way that Roger did with Jane, right? Oh, and this is her first marriage, and at a time where the burden of making the marriage successful was placed firmly on the woman's shoulders. Right, and ultimately, I mean... Shout out to Megan. Megan really does try her, her her absolute hardest. And and it's funny, but when he sleeps with Betty, Betty says something like particularly knowing and profound. 
I guess having been through the the process herself of saying uh, Megan doesn't know that like loving you is the worst way to like get to you or to get you. And that holds true. Uh, Megan does everything she can think of. You know, she, Megan does everything she can possibly think of and, and it still doesn't work. And ultimately Dawn and Megan do get divorced. Right, right. Like I said, Don is broken, and that's not his fault that he was broken, but it is his responsibility that he never took the initiative to repair himself in healthy ways. We saw glimmers of hope with him, particularly when he, with his relationship with uh, with Faye, right? Right. Dr. Faye. But, you know, he's toxic, so he don't, he don't vibe with that. <laughs> Don actively repels situations where he could grow as a person consistently. Right. Or be happy. Yeah. Or he can grow or just, or be happy. Um, one of the final straws in the relationship is when Anna's niece, Stephanie calls Dawn for help. Cause she's pregnant and he asked Megan to put her up in California. Cause Megan's in California right now working. Right. But Megan's really insecure. Stephanie's really beautiful. She clearly has a very close relationship with Dawn. And it's alluded in like the end of season four, the beginning of season five, that Stephanie knows Dawn's secret, right? And that mm-hmm. she's just kept it. So, and that kind of level of intimacy can be felt. Like you can tell when two people are close to each other by how they speak of each other or how they speak to each other. Um, and so Megan doesn't doesn't help Stephanie the way that Dawn requested. She gives her a check for like 5000 and tells her to leave. But shout out to Megan, like, she gets a million dollars out of the situation. Listen, not if that ain't, if that ain't a divorce settlement. Mm. <laughs> she, uh, basically dons money from, like, the partnership after, um, McCann, like, absorbs their, their company is, like, a million dollars. And he just writes her his check for his million and, and she gets it. And then her, her, and then listen, her mother also gets in there and is like, hey, ladies, when your man want to get spoke while, just go back and hit him up, stop. Hey. <laughs> and we hate Marie. All- <laughs> <laughs> and Marie takes all the shit out of his apartment and she's like, this is our shit now. I just wanted to let you know. Oh, and she's still fucking Roger. That's a thing. Right. And they, and, um, and she starts to have sex with Roger again, and and uh, Megan, I think for the first time understands, like I guess the position her mother is in, because like her, it's Megan, her sister, and then the mother are all helping her move out of Don's place. And when the sister finds out, like the sister blows up, and Megan just looks at her and she goes, "You you don't understand, like." our mom has been happy, unhappy for like a very long time. So like, if this is somebody who like makes her happy, then like, you got to leave that shit alone. Like, because being in a marriage and being unhappy like this is, you know, I just did it. So like, that shit's not fun. Right. And her mom's been doing this for how many years while Emil's been sleeping with his students to feel validated. Um, and, you you know, they have grown children now. How long is she supposed to put up with being miserable? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's, 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 it's a mess. Um, oh, I'll go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so something I find interesting about this season is that I think this season also is about, like, I think this season finally shines a light on, like, 
I don't want to say like the damage or the deconstruction, but I, I do think that like other, like we, the audience know that, um, the shine of, I think a glamor that like shines onto Donald Draper is like fake, but this season, like other characters start to notice it as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think Don himself like is kind of like awoken to like is really sort of like self-actualizing and self-realizing that like his shit stinks. Um, and right. and it starts to happen in, in a really interesting way. So when, uh, right before McCann dissolves the agency, there is a scene where one of the copy editors is, asks Don for advice and Don tells him, he's like, you just go in there, you tell the client their bullshit and then, like, you light a cigarette and you leave. And um, and he tells a story about the time he did something like that to Lucky Strike. And, of course, it backfires. <laughs> and the copy editor comes back and tells him that, tells Don that, like, it backfired. And Don says, well, you must not have done it right. And the copy copy editor says, no, I did it exactly the way you told me to. But I should have known better um, because I'm not you. You have no character. And the copy editor specifically says and tells Don, like, you have no character. You have you don't have anything. You're just handsome. So people roll over for you. And it's like, whew. Listen, that first cut is the deepest. (laughs) But um, um, did he lie? Right? It's like, did he lie? Like, and it really, like, and shout out to John Hamm, because, like, when he says it, like, John Hamm sort of, like, like, he got, he, like, looks like he got sucker punched. Like, he's like, what do you mean I'm just handsome? <laughs> and it, and it, but it does start this sort of, um, this ripple effect, this ball, because then, like, Don even starts questioning, like, the women in his life, like, like, would you sleep with me, like, if I didn't look like this? And, they're all like, yeah, like, no, duh. Um, I hate to break it to you. Um, we talk about pretty privilege a lot, and we've we've talked about it, you know, in various situations on various other sh- series that we've covered pertaining to women. But pretty privilege is very real for men as well. Um, it does matter with women. Um, I think Don Draper could get a sort of caliber of women with the money that he has, but his his ambitious personality coupled with his his appearance and knowing that women find that attractive is actually what makes him so popular with men like they know that every woman wants him and so now you want to get to know the men the man that other that other that women think is a suitable partner like these these men aren't blind to how their wives and girlfriends look at don draper Right. And it's, it's interesting, like specifically that scene where he, where he says you, like you have no character, you're just handsome before it even, I think, or like right after it, the the copy editor, he says, he says, you know, Roger tells that lucky strike story too, but it's clear that what's the guy's name? Lee, what's his face? Lee Garner Jr. Yeah. He's like, but, um, he says, but Roger says that he always invited you because Lee Garner Jr. would was always fantasizing about jacking you off. Oh, so Roger knew Lee was gay. 
Yeah, basically, that's that's the illusion. Right, right, right. And I can understand that. But you know what's super interesting to me? Lee Garner Jr. tried Sal, but he never tried Don. Well, yeah. And th- and that and that goes to what you're saying. It's interesting how like Don's there because like he's like right because he's pretty and like Lee is fan like, you know, he's there to be like the body, the face, right, to sell this thing. But yet he's still protected in that because like like you said, like Lee's not gonna try Don. Right, right, right. Like, it's really it's super interesting. Um, but yeah, he didn't lie. Um, Don has a lot of charisma and bravado, but that still comes part and parcel from being handsome and knowing exactly how handsome he is. There is a certain confidence that people who know they're attractive carry themselves with. Right. Like if you people have been telling you your whole life that you look good or people, you don't even have to tell you if they sit up straighter and they're desperate to make eye contact with you, you know that. (laughs) And you, and if you're a person like Don Draper, you will exploit that to your, to your benefit because selling himself is how he sells these ads. Right. Exactly. Two more interesting things happen in season one, the moon landing happened, which was really cool. And also Michael Ginsburg has a psychotic break this season. He does. He's like a big one. Our man was barely holding on for a long time there. A very long time. We could tell that he was, uh, for lack of a better term, struggling with his demons. And it comes to a head this season. He cuts off his own nipple, you guys. Right? It's so... It's it's like, woof. It was hard to watch. Um, And we know his past. We know where he was born and how he grew up and living in an orphanage and then, you know... um, his relationship with his father, which is, you know, his father's a good man, but he can't repair that trauma that Michael's experienced as a child um, and experiences as an adult on account of being Jewish in a very anti-Semitic environment. So then in part two, we pick up like uh, several months later, like nine months later, and it runs from April 1970 to November 1970. And this is, you know, the last thing we saw of part one was the firm winning the Burger Chef account. Burger Chef was a very thinly veiled Burger King, but okay. Um, <laughs> um, they win this account. And here we are in the 70s. And for our final season, Joan deals with some more harassment when she goes to a business meeting with Peggy. And it's some more like bad feminist shit. Joan basically being told by Peggy what men have said to her her entire life. Well, if you didn't look like that or you didn't dress like that, but she's not dressed any more differently than any other woman in that period. And she can't control her shape. <laughs> right. Like, what do you want the woman to do? Right. Um, there's a huge level of victim shaming. Um, and I, I love that the the Joan character was cast the way that she was, because oftentimes we'll we'll get like a January Jones and cast her as a victim of harassment. But um, women like Joan get harassed just as much, if not more. And the voluptuousness of their figures is is always blamed for it. Like, it's not even, oh, oh uh, she led me on or whatever, whatever. They'll just point to her and be like, well, she looks like that. What do you expect? <laughs> 
Right. This is when they're still at, or like, because the second half, I think, over by McCann by now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I don't, I think that happens earlier. Because I think that's when they're still at the, the other, their, their, their independent agency. Uh, this no, this happens in part two. I did write that down. This happens in part two of season seven. Um, but I think it begins, it's, it's at the very beginning of the season. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, this is not like anywhere down the line. This is like at the very top of the season. So this is episode eight or the very top of part two. So episode eight. Okay. Yeah. I believe this is, um, um, also, Don gets his wake-up call. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about this wake-up call because I thought that Anna's death would be the wake-up call he needed to live a more authentic life. But he learns that Rachel died of leukemia this season. And that becomes a wake-up call for him. And then he pursues a real, honest relationship with a, a waitress named Diana. Like, oh. not, not a hookup. Like, he, like, he's actually pursuing her. I thought that was, like, a mess. I thought he was, that like... Was a mess. Like, but I didn't think he was honestly pursuing with her. I thought he was just doing like he under he just saw that she was broken and he was trying to like captain save a hoe. And I never feel like, but that's the closest he can get to a real relationship. Like he's never been with a woman that needed that was broken and needed to be fixed. He was always the broken one. I think he felt strong being able to play the role of the hero for somebody. <laughs> Um. Okay. Uh, Cause I okay. Like I knew that, but like he like, but yeah, that's what I'm he's always been with like really broken women, like women who are super broken, more broken than he is. And he's always just sort of like, uh. So like, no, Betty and Megan weren't more broken than Don. Yeah, but like Midge was like. Midge was a became a heroin addict after they broke up and Don's defense. And like, um, he always like finds these like broken girls. Like, they're like some yeah they're, they're broken in ways, but he really doesn't even understand the full extent of their brokenness until he's already like in there. <laughs> Sylvia was kind of broken. Like, oh, Sylvia was very broken. Yeah, for like, sure. And Bobby. Bobby, Bobby was super one. broken. He loves these broken hoes. Like, that's his favorite. Like, yeah. that's what he does. Like, the teacher, the Fadi teacher was super broken. He also didn't know how broken she was until he met her brother. Like, he's like, oh, she's just this beautiful, curly-haired woman who teaches kids. She's perfect. <laughs> no, he knows her thotty ass is broken. <laughs> yeah, like, like Miss Farrell had such a Jezebel spirit. I'm dying on that hill. Like, child, you can do better. Love yourself. Um, But yeah, the situation with Diana was really messed up. I don't think he was ready for how broken she was, though. Like, he, she goes off without a trace. He tries to find her and win her back. It's a mess. Meanwhile, Betty is leveling up. She already had an anthropology degree, and now she's telling Don that she's pursuing a psychology degree. I, I don't know how I feel about that, because God knows she needs lots of therapy herself. But, like, honestly, when Betty was like, I'm pursuing a master's in psychology, that made perfect sense to me, because, like, there's always, like, that old sort of, like, adage that, like, people who are, like, 
fucked up people become psychiatrists because like mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out why they are so fucked up themselves. So right. like that's what I'm saying. Betty's trying to figure out her issues and Don's issues. Like she's she's like, why am I so fucked up? Like that that made perfect sense to me. I was like, good for you, Betty. You, you fix yourself, friend. Yep. But shout out to Mad Men for giving us a really good, one of the few decent portrayals of therapists via um, Sally's therapist. Thank you for that. I'm sure therapists everywhere appreciated that. <laughs> shout out, I know, shout out to y'all. So something that happens halfway through, so McCann, McCann absorbs um, the agency and uh, McCann is like awful. Everybody hates McCann and but one of the interesting things about watching uh, everybody go to work at McCann is that you realize that, like, this shit could be so much worse, <laughs> like, for the women in the office. Mm-hmm. Like, just when you think it couldn't be worse, like, it gets worse. And and it really shows the um, the true the trueness of that old adage, like, better the devil that you know than the devil you don't. Because... Uh, shit gets real out here for some of our favorite people. Don goes to work at McCann and he hates it so much that he literally just gets up in a meeting and he gets in his car and he drives and he like stop like till the series finale. <laughs> like he's just like I'm finished. But and we also see some of our our favorite people struggle there. Like Roger doesn't know really know what to do. Uh, having you know essentially lost his family business. Right. And so now, I mean, he's still wealthy as ever, but uh, is really rudderless and and doesn't, feels like he's sort of purpose. He's not, he doesn't have like a purpose. Joan is straight up fired. And they think that Peggy, who is really a copy chief, uh, is actually a secretary. And they don't give her an office until like two weeks into her job, her new, uh, into the move. You know, I always thought that it was going to be Roger and Joan in the end, but a part of me is glad that it didn't it didn't turn out that way. Because like you said, Joan is a very ambitious woman. She had to stifle her ambition several times because of colleagues, because of her ex-husband, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think something about being with a man like Roger would have made her comfortable to the point where she would have lost her ambition again. Right, I think she probably would have settled again, but now she sort of gets to Jones the series, you know, really getting to see like how far she can take herself. Right. Um Joan has big Virgo energy. She does. She really does. Um another person that kind of glows up this season is Pete Campbell. Um, he gets an opportunity to work with Learjet, so he pieces out and he reconciles with Trudy and she agrees to give him his third and final chance and come with uh, their daughter, Tammy, to be with him in Wichita. Um, Wichita I know. Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, so, Kansas. Listen, ain't shit popping over there, but <laughs> if you got money, every any place can be home. <laughs> Right, any place can be home. Any place can pop. Um, and and just the fact that he's willing to move to Wichita, I feel like with Trudy, that means that he's finally gotten over his aversion to the suburbs. Yeah, like I I think the beautiful thing about Pete's storyline is like Pete essentially does the thing that we had been taught, we've been talking about over the course of I think these episodes, and that he just becomes okay with like who he is. 
Mm-hmm. I think he really does just settle into himself and who he is, what he's about, what he does, what he doesn't do in his life and, and the things that matter. And, and he becomes really secure in that. And, and that's all he ever really needed to do. This season, uh, after a cancer scare in previous seasons, Betty gets an actual cancer diagnosis. And, uh, whew. And it's bad. She's like, she has, I mean, she's eligible for hospice. She has six months or unless right. she's going to die. And, you know, Donna's wifeless again. And Betty tells him straight up, like, I want my brother and my wife to have the, his wife to have the kids because they need a woman in their lives. And See, that family can offer stability. And I, I, I understand what she's saying, but I actually, but I also felt like, and I, we talked about this a bit before, but I felt like, cause what, cause the conversation that happens is Don is like, yes, like I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to come back. Like I'm going to raise those kids. Like, of course. And Betty's like, uh, <laughs> now, you know, have you met you? Like, but I do think that Don, if, if she, Betty was like, okay, like, yeah, I do think if, if Don like focused solely on like being a single father and like raising those kids, that would pro- that would have probably been the best thing for him to like, f- like it really would have. Absolutely, it would have given him a chance to heal his childhood wounds and make up for all the things that he put Sally and Bobby through. Right, like I mean, Bob- Eugene's fine. <laughs> that baby's fine. <laughs> the baby's fine. But um, yeah, Eugene, because and Bobby, because Bobby's still pretty young. Sally is you know, about to be, like, in her 20s, so, like, she's, like, out, like, but being a real father to Bobby and Eugene, I think, would have been the best thing for him. Um, Just that, that ability to focus on somebody besides himself, I think, would have been really good for him, but, but, but Betty puts a stop to it. And then Sally backs her up, so, like, he, so when that happens, he, like, spirals really heavily. Right. Um, which is only to be expected. Um, if someone told me that they didn't think I had the competence to raise my own kids, I'd feel some type of way. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so Don spirals like super heavy and he, he finds Stephanie and they go to this sort of like cult. It's not a cult, but it's cult E like retreat. And Mind you, nobody knows. Don has, like, a job that he just hasn't been at in, like, what, three, like, a m- months now? And nobody knows where he is. Yeah, it's been, I feel like it's been at least a year, at least. And so, he, at this culty retreat, he calls, of course, the one person who he's close to, Peggy. He calls Peggy, and Peggy's like, where the fuck are you? <laughs> and... He's crying, and, like, he's, like, crying, and he's, like, I'm not, and, and like, he's basically, like, he's, he's having, like, a crisis, because he's, like, I, I'm not, like, a man of my word, I have no real integrity, I fucked up my family, I fuck I, like, fucked up my wife, like, I fucked up my kids, like, what, like, what's my purpose? He's, like, he, and he's, but... But the thing that he repeats is, like, he goes, like, he's, like, I have no family. I have no family. Which, 
and this is the first time, like, and it, not the first time, but it's the time when I, I, I like really remember being like emotionally really irritated with Dawn because Ooh. like you do have a family, Dawn. Like if you want it, like it's there for you. You're the one that like does not want this family. Like you could go back to New York. You could raise your freaking kids. Like, Peggy would be your family. I mean, Peggy even says on the phone, she's like, Don, come home. Come home and we'll fix it. Like, Peggy, who by this point is, like, so close to him. Um, like, I mean, on the road to being as close to him as, like, Anna was, really. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you have your kids and, like, Peggy would be your family. Joan would be your family. Like, these, right. like you have one like but you don't want it so like what like what like what is this so, Roger's like literally always been your friend like he was your ma- he's the closest you came to a brother since Adam right it's like these people would would be there so like but you keep throwing them away so like what are you upset about like i don't i was like don this is ridiculous i mean i get it i understand being pressed about the kids However, can't stress this enough. However, there's literally nothing stopping you from getting those kids if you really want them. You're their father. Legally, you didn't give up your parental rights. If their mother's dead, there's no court in the world that's not going to give their wealthy father custody if he wants it. I think just seeing him fight for them would have changed the children's perspective of him radically. He ultimately decides to submit to this sort of culty, new agey thing. And the the final end of the show is this Coke commercial from the 70s. And that's it. Oh, um, mm. Peggy and Stan end up together, by the way. But it's it's evil and I don't want to talk about it. Ugh, talk it's, about character assassination. Um, yeah, there was like... Flirt- Y'all can call that flirtation and sexual tension if you want to. I saw it as negging. And chauvinism, but you it's know. negging, it's chauvinism, <laughs> it's like, and I, I think what really bugs me about it is like, even earlier in this season, they show Stan cheating on his nurse girlfriend with somebody at work, and I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to believe that Peggy's like in love with him, like what, or that like he's been in love with Peggy, like what. Yeah, I don't believe this. It doesn't vibe. It doesn't mesh. I know he's like the last man standing, but don't do this. <laughs> don't um, do this. One of the worst things about the situation is that Joan starts her own film production company, Holloway Harris. And she offers Peggy to be a partner with her in this. You know, they've worked together a long time. They've known each other a long time. She knows Peggy will put in that work. And Peggy's like, nah. And I'm just well, like, not even, not even that. Peggy's like, I have to think about it. And Peggy is on the verge of saying yes. And then fucking Stan talks her out of it. Right. So basically, like, this is a character assassination unlike I've ever seen before. Um, because we know that Peggy is someone who wants love. Never been portrayed as someone who would choose love over success. She actually says this. Um, in season at the end of season two to Pete when she talks about giving up their child for adoption, right? right? I could have shamed you into being with me. I could have had you if I wanted, but that doesn't mean to, as much to me as being good at this and like 
making this career for herself. Like the Peggy that they gave us at the end of season seven is silly and desperate. Right. And I don't like it. And even more so, it's like Peggy says to Dawn, like, I remember when she's speaking to, there's like a also pivotal thing about like insight to Peggy's character and the things that she wants. And she tells Dawn, she goes, after and I think this is after like she meets Betty or something and and he wins like some award. She's like, You have everything and you have so much of it. I just want what you have. Mm. Which meet like meaning that she wants professional success and the sort of, you know, husband, family thing. So give her both, but like so I get wanting to pair her with somebody but like fucking stan stan y'all could have just taken michael out of that hospital and let him be be the one Uh, (sighs) literally anybody but stan um i'm not gonna lie to you this ending fee was a lackluster as fuck and i know in the 80s when like terminator came out and Holloway Harris produced that. She was feeling some type of way. <laughs> I know. She's feeling mad. So... Uh, I'm kidding. But seriously, film production, why would you say no to that? Like, moving pictures were still a very new thing. Like, you're 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 still, maybe not at the ground floor, but you're, like, at the third floor of, like, a high-rise building coming in in film production in the 70s. Right, because the seventies, uh, the seventies will be like the like the golden age of film, like in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that right. um is sort of accept. Like that's like a critically like sort of accepted thing. Like seventies, you'll see like the greatest sort of leap and move forward in terms of like artistic um, merit of of film and filmmaking and of in the U.S. So it's like. Hate that for yeah. you. Hate that for her. Sis, um, I wanted better for for Peggy, especially the way that this show like bolstered her up over the seasons. I wanted better for her, but I think um, I don't know if Pete deserved his happy ending, but he got it, and um, he became a better version of himself once he became comfortable with who he was. Um, I think Jones' ending might be the only ending that I was like fully comfortable with. Like, I Same. felt satisfied with. <laughs> Same. I, Jones' ending is, like, probably the only one that I'm I'm on board with all the way. But all in all, uh, season seven for me is good minus. I don't know. I hate those endings. Yeah, this is the only season I'm going to give, like, I'm going to give it a good minus, possibly a basic plus, because of those endings. If this is the last we'll see of anyone, why is... Just why? Obviously, one of the most celebrated, critically acclaimed um, television series of the past, uh, I would probably put it at, like, century. Um, um, well, because, the century's with the way things started are- <laughs> in our defense. <laughs> Uh, with the way things are going now, 20 years, you probably will get a reboot, but God forbid, God forbid it. (laughs) Like, hopefully not, hopefully never. Um, but it is like, it's definitely, um, there as a shining example. I think if you're a writer of any kind and you want to, particularly like screenwriter and you want to study like 
subtext or how to write subtext, I think this is the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you are looking to to write, period, I think this is a great show to watch. Um, I also want to say, I want to give Mad Men writers credit, besides the ending of of Stan and Peggy, which definitely feels thrown together. I feel like the show's known from day one what type of what type of show it is and what type of story it wants to tell. Yeah. Um, I can respect that a lot because that takes a lot of vision. Um, that mm-hmm. takes a lot of commitment. That takes a lot of like planning and plotting. Series Bible must have been thick as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> um I, I want to give Mad Men credit to um not just for writing, but also never telling the audience too much too soon. A lot of shows do information dump when they do flashbacks, and this show gives you just what you need to digest the material you're going to be seeing right now. <laughs> Right. No, I agree with that. Um, I, I love that for it. I really love that. But if you guys ever do a reboot of this time period, show me Clara's life and the lives of the other maids that she knows. Show me Hollis's life. Show me the lives of the black secretaries like Dawn and show us these people, our Mad Men uh, principal cast, from their prota- from their perspective. Yeah, I would say that's the only thing I'd want. Like, I would never want anybody to redo this show, but I would like this show from, like, like Hollis and Clara's point of view. And, and like you said, um, not Clara, Carla, Hollis and Carla and Shirley and Dawn's uh, perspective. But I would also just like, I'd like a story about, like I said, the Black ad, ad executives on Madison Avenue. Because um, they that did exist. That would be exist. so cool. Uh, they're actually like Twitter's like there's like there are photos floating on Twitter of like those offices in the 60s and 70s. And like uh, they're first of all, mu- the, the decoration when I'd say uh, taste, when I say uh, vision <laughs> uh, already. So it it looks like an interesting space. It was an interesting space. I I I want to meet, you know the black version of Peggy and Joan and, and Roger and, and Don. And I, I want to see, I I would want to see that. That's still a story that I really would like to see. And I'd be interested in putting that out, right. Put that out there. Um, but there it is. Uh, And there you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made the final seasons of Mad Men good, bad, basic, and completely captivating. If you'd like to check out the series, Mad Men is currently streaming for free on Amazon Prime. If you're a GBB patron on our top two tiers, be sure to check out our Mad Men Spotify playlist if you haven't already. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, be sure to share it with your friends. Tune in next week as we keep the historical drama season going with a recap of the heart-pounding antebellum period drama, Underground. Underground is currently streaming on Hulu, so be sure to get into this series and go refresh your memory. You don't want to miss out on this conversation. The Good, The Bad, The Basic is currently streaming on all major podcast platforms, so be sure to tune in to our regular weekly episodes on the go. Leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media. Please follow us at the Good Bad Basic on Twitter and at Good Bad Basic Pod on Instagram to get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all of our weekly episodes debut first. 
If you love this sort of content and want more, a producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time, bye everyone.